Welcome to this event being organized by the Middle East Center here at LSE. Um, we're going to be hearing from Jim Muir, who's the BBC News, uh, I'm sure you all know, he's a visiting senior fellow at the Middle East Center, as indeed am I. Um, so, um, Jim is going to talk for about 30 minutes, and then we will open up for um, questions from you. I have to ask you please to silence your phones. Uh, the talk is being recorded. Um, and Jim, welcome. Great nice to see you again. Um, Jim has been, again, I'm sure you know this, but worth repeating, he's worked as a Middle East correspondent for the BBC uh, based in Beirut. And he has over 40 years of experience covering Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, Iran, and Iraq. He took a first class degree in Arabic at Cambridge in 1969, worked in publishing, and he moved to Beirut with an timing in January 1975. Um, he covered all phases of the Lebanese civil war for the BBC and many other radio and print outlets. He then moved to Bosnia for a bit of R&R in the early 1990s. <laughs> and then he arrived in Cairo as the BBC Middle East correspondent. Uh, he reopened the BBC Bureau in Tehran, was correspondent there from 1999 to 2004. Went back to Beirut in 2005 and spent a lot of time covering Iraq for the BBC. And then there was the overthrow of Hosni Mubarak in Egypt at the beginning of the Arab Spring in 2011. Jim also provided a large proportion of the BBC's coverage of the Syrian uprising and the Saudi Continuing War from the spring of 2011. And since 2016, he's taken a sabbatical from the BBC, though I think I can reveal that he's not been that restful either. Um, Jim, over to you. Um, we're very pleased to have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, just let me know if you can't hear and speak louder or just microphone or whatever. <clears throat> um, thank you very much, Ian. Thank you to the LSC Middle East Centre for hosting this event. Um, and thank you all for being here, despite the rain and the fact that it's rather late, kind of after a busy day for all of you, I'm sure. So if you want to drop off, please don't snore loudly or anything. Um, I was going to give a little spiel about um, where I've been and what I've done, but you just told them that, so that's five minutes gone already. Um, uh, I'd like to say, first of all, that although I've addressed millions of people, often through cameras and microphones and things, um, it's much more terrifying being a room full of real people, I can tell you that. So, um, the other thing that was slightly daunting about giving this talk is that I've got like half an hour to give you a, a spiel, a rundown. And I've been in at least 44 years now, I arrived on the 4th of January 1975, so I figured out by mathematics that it's about 40, 40 seconds per year. Um, so if I start talking very, very fast, you know why. Um, in fact, what I will do is, rather than trying to give some kind of chronological account, is to dip in and out, look at uh, certain situations or events um, that have produced change, because that's what we're talking about, 40-odd decades and more of change in the Middle East, um, and see how those changes have actually carried through to today, because if you look around at today's landscape, you will find quite a lot of things have got roots deep back in those decades. 
Um, so let's start back in good old Lebanon in 1975. As Ian said, I arrived there not really knowing there was about to be a war over the last 15 years. I thought it would be a nice, kind of calm place to uh, base the Switzerland of the Middle East with the reputation. Um, in fact, about three months after I got there, all hell broke loose and continued to do so for, well, certainly the two years of what I call the core uh, Lebanese conflict or civil war. Um, from the beginning, it was clear it had two main strands to it. One, a kind of domestic Lebanese struggle between left and right, Christian, Muslim, sectarian dimension, but also, to a certain extent, social inequalities and things like that playing into it. But very definitely another strand, which was uh, partly to do with the Palestinians, who, of course, were deeply embedded in Lebanon. When I got there, they were essentially running more of <coughs> a, a little state within a state. They had. Um, they were an operation going in an area called Bakhani on the, the southern edge of Beirut and were doing their own thing, also carrying out attacks on Israel from Lebanon. So obviously the, the, Christian, the Christians who regarded themselves as the, the kind of guardians of Lebanon's sovereignty were pretty unhappy about that. So that was the two main strands of this war. I won't go into all the details of the fighting and so on, but drawing a line after those two years, if you look at the main changes or the main um, elements that emerged from it. One was the Syrian military presence in Lebanon, which was actually invited in by the Christians of all people. They ended up fighting the Syrians, but they were the ones who invited them in. Uh, with the green light from Israel, um, and I know that because I talked to Yitzhak Rabin, who at the time was uh, Israeli defense minister. I interviewed him some years later, and he said, yes, we gave green light to the Americans, to the Syrians to be there. And he wanted them to come right down to the border because then, you know, the Israelis could have held Syria responsible for border security and they would have had a much easier time of it. The Syrians didn't do that, of course, because they knew that uh, it was better to keep South Lebanon as a kind of buffer zone that they could use to pressure Israel and do things that were deniable. So those are the two um, main strands coming out of that first two years of conflict. And largely because it was a very complicated conflict. It didn't actually end when the fighting stopped in 1976. It kind of went under the ashes, mutated, and then broke out later on. Um, I should have mentioned also the, the other main thing was, um, apart from the Syrian military presence, Israel's growing involvement. Um, going around Israel, uh, Christian Lebanese villages close to the border of Israel, the southern border, in 1976, already I could see ammunition boxes with Israeli markings on them. So the Israelis had already kind of uh, opened up into Lebanon, and that was the, a relationship that <coughs> continued to build in the coming years. So the Lebanese conflict never really went away. It mutated and it burst out uh, in different forms later on. Um, now I want to fast forward a little bit, otherwise we're going to be here all night. Uh, to 1979, which was an absolutely crucial year in the Middle East for two main reasons, um, both of them quite a long way from Lebanon. Uh, you had the Islamic Revolution in Iran, which was absolutely crucial. I don't think all that many people saw it coming, and I doubt very much whether anybody who saw it there thought it would last 40 years. Well, it has. It's, it was actually reaching its peak exactly 40 years ago now. It was the first of February that Ayatollah Khomeini went back from, uh, from France to uh, Iran and the revolution succeeded within about two weeks. Um, now that uh, obviously had a huge impact on the region. Um, first of all, they had a, a big problem with the Americans. Um, of course, the, the Americans were deeply involved with the Shah, who'd been thrown out by the revolution. Um, and essentially, um, 
that started the cleavage. Uh, they could probably have coexisted if it hadn't got more radical inside Iran, because um, what happened was the so-called radical students took over the American embassy, you had a hostage situation where American diplomats were held hostage for 444 days, famously. Um, so that when the next thing <coughs> happened, namely Iraq attacking Iran and invading Iran, a lot of Iranians saw this as the West, the West coming to get them to, to puncture their revolution and to foil their revolution. That was their instinctive feeling. It may not have been true, but it launched eight years of a really horrible war that went on, much like the First World War in, in uh, Europe. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands dead on both sides. Um, and that really provided the background for a lot of what happened in the rest of the Middle East during most of the 80s, up till 1988, when Ayatollah Khomeini finally swallowed what he called the poison chalice and agreed to, to peace with Iraq. Um, now, the arrival of the Iranian Revolution and tension with Iraq and eventually the war with Iraq caused one of the big changes in the region, which was Syria hooking up with Iran. Syria is an Arab country, obviously, run by the Ba'ath Party, um, as was Iraq next door. You would think they would get together, but quite the opposite, because they were rival wings of the Ba'ath Party. It was about it was like an anti-magnetic force. The, the way, there was no way they were going to get together. So Syria did what was, in some Arab eyes, almost kind of apostasy, which is putting their hand with a non-Arab country, Iran, fighting against Iraq, their mutual neighbor. We've got the map up there, and that's a, the big red one is Iran, <laughs> and uh, Iraq is in the middle, and then you've got Syria. So in fact, that is the alliance. Now that alliance was desperately important, and it because it's the about the only thing I can think of in regional politics which has endured for 40 years is that alliance between Syria and Iran. It's still there now, and you can see it every day uh, in Syria, where you have uh, Iranians fighting to preserve the regime in which they have such a large state. Um, now I'm going to flip back to Lebanon again because that, that is highly relevant. Um, in 1982, you have the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. And again, uh, it's a very major event with lots of things spinning off it. Um, essentially, Sharon wanted to decapitate the PLO to basically settle the Palestinian issue by r rendering the Palestinian movement leaderless uh, and basically liquidating the Palestinian cause in that way. That was his chief ambition, but there were a lot of other aims. Um, don't want to get into huge detail on that. But one of the lasting things to come out of it, again, was this. When the Israelis came in, they hit the Syrians very hard. They knocked out about certainly 80 or so tanks. They shot down a lot of Syrian <coughs> aircraft. They humiliated the Syrians into pulling out of Beirut. Now, this is, was a military presence to the Syrians, which they themselves had green-lighted. So from the Syrian point of view, they'd been betrayed by the Israelis. Uh, not only that, they then found the Israelis on their western flank, very vulnerable uh, to attack. Uh, so very uncomfortable for the Syrians. Strategically, they had to strike back. It's not a situation where anybody can just um, confront the Israelis militarily and army to army. Any caravan army is going to get sloshed. So what did they do? They fell back on this alliance with Iran and they created Hezbollah, which is still there today. Hezbollah was set up basically by Iran and Syria. Uh, Ali Akbar Muhtashami was the um, Iranian ambassador in Damascus, who was the channel for this the construction of this very powerful weapon that is Hezbollah. So you had, in the 80s, you had 
suicide bombings, uh, first of all, in the Israeli military headquarters in, in Tyre. You had the bombing of the American embassy, you had the American marine barracks being bombed, French marine barracks being bombed as well. Um, and then hostage crises, Western hostages being seized in Beirut and, and held to ransom. Um, but just a little on a kind of side note there, one of the bizarre things about war is it, it creates extraordinary things that happen. All this time, the Iran-Iraq war is still going on. Iran is running out of weapons. Who gives them weapons? The Americans send them weapons to Israel, of all people. It's hard to imagine, but that's what happened in the 80s. You had the Americans selling secretly, selling weapons to Iran through Israel, and using that money to finance the Contras in Latin America. Um, all of this very clandestine until it, uh, it came out somehow in the 80s and in the mid-80s. Um, so uh, that is showing just how important that axis between Tehran and Damascus is and how, how it has proved its worth, as it were, many, many times through these four decades. I want to flip back to 1979 again because there were two very important things that happened. One was the Iranian Revolution. And the other was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which might seem a very long way away. And there are reasons why what happened there impacts still now in the Middle East. Um, and that was this. The Soviets invaded, and Afghanistan then became a magnet for Sunni Arab militants, jihadis, flocking there. Uh, Osama bin Laden went there. Uh, Zarqawi, Abu Musab Zarqawi, eventually ended up being the ISIS leader, who went there. <coughs> This, it became a kind of training ground, it was a sandburst for the militant Sunni Islamic movement. Um, the Soviets, ten years later, pulled out, having realized that mountainous places are not very smart to, to be in, very hard to control. So they pulled out. Uh, eventually, the Taliban took over after a lot of scrapping between different Mujahideen groups. Um, Taliban being radical and very much in the mold of Osama bin Laden. So the product of that was, of course, 9-11. Um, which was one of those turning points almost immediately sparked the so-called war on terror. Um, obviously, you know, American-led attacks and eventually invasion and occupation of Afghanistan and the suppression, at least temporarily, of the Islamic militants there. The Americans moved on. They moved on to Iraq. Um, you may ask yourself why, because it was fairly obvious after the American-led invasion in which Britain was complicit that there were no weapons of mass destruction. Destruction They served the country upside down. They didn't find an aspirin factory. Um, there was no real terrorism in Iraq. Saddam Hussein <coughs> controlled the country with an iron grip. There was no uh, real terrorism going on there. However, the American-led invasion, which was one of those turning points, um, completely uh, destroyed everything in Iraq that was structural. They not just got rid of the head, Saddam Hussein and his uh, coterie, they eliminated the Ba'ath Party, they dissolved the army, sent a lot of Sunnis who were demoted the main officer corps, <coughs> the main officer corps, were sent home angry, fuming, armed, and with a lot of battle experience. I mean, a very, very dangerous situation. Um, so these things kind of married up. You had a complete uh, destruction of the whole regime, the Ba'ath Party, no political structures. So the, the net result of all of that was several things. First of all, that um, there was a huge upsurge of sectarianism because people 
uh, fell back on sect and mosque and ethnicity like the Kurds um, as their identity, their political identity, because there was no alternative. There was no parties, opposition parties waiting in the wings to take over. They were thrown back on their sect or, or other affiliations, ethnic affiliations. Um, secondly, it tore down the wall that Saddam Hussein had built against Iran to contain Iran. Uh, you talk about Donald Trump's wall, but this was uh, just as effective. It wasn't a big actual wall, but it, uh, he was regarded by during the Iran-Iraq war as the kind of bulwark of the Arab world uh, containing Iran. That was gone, so a huge flood of Iranian influence into Iraq, which is 60% Shia to start with. Um, so they had many vehicles and many ways in which they could spread their influence. Um, and of course terrorism, because what happened then was the Islamic militants who had bedded in in Afghanistan and been basically bombed out of there, moved through Iran and into Iraq. So you had Abu Musab, Zarqawi and others turning up there and pitching themselves into this perfect for them situation of, of absolute chaos. Um, it was a perfect anarchy for them. Uh, absolutely, um, it couldn't be a better sort of hothouse for them to, to develop. They were blowing up uh, Shia mullahs, uh, ayatollahs, UN offices, and so on. And they pitched into this sectarian situation. They were carrying out gratuitous massacres of Shia, provoking the Shia, until eventually in 2005, 6, 7, you had this horrible. Uh, sectarian killing on you know, going on between uh, Sunnis and Shia. And on an average day in Baghdad, we were seeing like a hundred bodies turning up of people who had been tortured to death with electric drills and things. Just their bodies just then dumped on the streets, uh, purely uh, on sectarian grounds, not because there was they had actually done anything wrong. Um, so drawing a line under Iraq, you see the things coming under there: enhanced sectarianism, which spread more through the region. Um, and this, the real entrenchment of Sunni uh, militants, militant, what you want to call it, terrorism, or whatever you want to call it, jihadist, Salafi activism. <coughs> um, and it, it, it went like a germ, and basically from Iraq, it was eventually the Americans had their surge and they threw Al Qaeda out, more or less. They sort of suppressed it. And Al Qaeda really just, sort of the militants just went into the woodwork and they moved across into Syria where conditions started to come right in 2011 for a similar kind of growth. Uh, they prospered there. They set in, they set, uh, by now they've mutated into ISIS. I mean, <coughs> split off from Al Qaeda. I won't go into the details of all that. Um, they set up their headquarters in Raqqa and they eventually became so powerful that they could simply. Uh, I should go back to Iraq again. Conditions there became ripe after the Americans uh, withdrew in 2011, I think it was. Um, job was not finished, really, because they left in place Maliki and the government there, who basically uh, did not bring the Sunnis properly on board. So there was a huge amount of Sunni resentment upon which um, ISIS could build. So they came back into came back into Iraq big time in 2014. They invaded Mosul, uh, hardly a shopping fire. The Iraqi army just collapsed and, and left them to it. Uh, there was rejoicing in the streets of Mosul at the time, as you may remember. Um, and it took a huge effort to, to basically turn that, that whole thing around. If you looked at the map a few years ago, there was just black all over that uh, arc of uh, Iraq, Syria, and so on. They seemed to be occupying sort of half the country and a lot of the useful, useful areas. Um, so where does that take us to? Um, 
let's draw a line under all that and see what came out of it. You've got sectarianism, you've got uh, Sunni militancy. And then along comes, just to confuse things further, along comes the Arab Spring, which everybody thought, oh, wonderful, let's call it the Spring, because it's, you know. Um, I'm going to go back to Beirut just for a minute. Uh, our old friend David Hurst that we were talking about just now, um, very sage and wise man, guardian correspondent for many years. One of the first things he said to me uh, when I got to know him, he's one of the first people I met in 1975 in Beirut, one of the first things he said was, look at all these Arab regimes, they've got no visible means of support, they're all politically bankrupt, they're going to collapse like a deck of cards. Well, 35 years later, he was sort of right. But what he didn't make account for was the, uh, the fact that there were invisible means of support in the shape of all the Mukhabarats, the secret pieces, the security services that were keeping all these regimes in power. You had the Assad in power in Damascus since uh, 1970, Gaddafi in Libya since 69, uh, obviously the military regime in Egypt since Nasser in the early 50s, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, 68, 70, they're all still there. They were all there, still casting concrete years and years later, uh, because the, the tide of history, or the, the flow of history, had been held back by these dams that were constructed by the Muslim Iraq. <coughs> and suddenly, in Tunisia, the dams started breaking. First Tunisia, then Egypt went, with social media playing a huge role in that. Um, and suddenly it was like a mighty rushing of waters, all these dams breaking at the same time. Syria started happening, and there was uh, Libya started happening. Yemen, there was huge stuff going on as well. Um, now each of these countries is different. They were suffering from the same syndrome, which was what I call Arab regime syndrome, which is a mixture of repression, corruption, nepotism, uh, tyranny, everything you can think of. Um, and it took, as I say, 30, 40 years for people to be angry enough to actually do something about it. But how much actually changed is another question. Each country dealt with the uprisings in different ways. Tunisia is held up as the best example because it hasn't turned into a sort of horribly violent mess like some of them. Um, largely because I think Ben Ali moved off really quite quickly. Uh, the, the kind of uh, so-called deep state in, in Tunisia wasn't so much the army, it was more the kind of bureaucracy. Um, and so Tunisia sort of survived. They had elections and the Islamists of the Nahda party who were um, who got the majority, I mean not the majority, they came out of the biggest party without an actual majority, they were coalition leaders. Um, they ruled for a while in coalition, and when they were voted out or voted against in the next election, they handed over. It's the only time in an Arab country where Islamists have been elected and then said, Mabruk and handed over to the people who won. It's not perfect by any means, but um, <coughs> the problems that caused the so-called Tasman Revolution are still very much there, especially unemployment and marginalization, uh, which is why so many Tunisians actually joined up with ISIS. Um, but at least it's, there's no fighting going on and they've got a constitutional process and it's not doing too badly. Uh, Egypt, Mubarak moved on quite quickly, I think possibly because the, uh, the military didn't really stand by him. I think they weren't happy that he was grooming his son Gamal for the, for the, for the leadership and they wanted to keep it in the hands of the military. So they didn't really put up much of a fight for Mubarak, and a lot of things stayed the same. The military remained very powerful. Again, Islamists elected at Morsi. He really played into the military's hands. They, they gave him enough rope to hang himself, almost literally. Um, and now things in Egypt, back in the hands of the military, Sisi, the president, and 
I think our Egyptian friends here, some of them would agree that things are actually much worse than they were under Mubarak. Um, I won't go into detail on Yemen because I'm not really a Yemen specialist. But let's get round to the big one, which is Syria. Um, as soon as the trouble started in Syria, um, my friend Bashar Zabari, who was the Iraqi Prime Minister for many years, um, he said that regime will use every trick in the book to stay in power. My goodness, he was right. Um, years on, Bashar was clinging on. For the first few years, um, he was using his own resources, but it became really existential for him. I mean, the rebels were in the middle of Damascus, and it was almost getting ready for the, the final push in 2012 or so. Um, so he fell back on that, that alliance with Iran. Uh, the Iranians came in, they, the Iranians sent Hezbollah in, um, and the Russians, who also had a big stake in Syria, and Bashar has kind of somehow managed to turn it around. Um, maybe he now thinks he's won, but I'm wondering, having gone through all that stuff in Lebanon, whether because you've got so many strands in the Syrian affair. Um, I used to say in the old days that you couldn't possibly have a, a conflict more complicated than the Lebanese one. Because <laughs> we had 18 or 20 different factions, and you had local fighting, and you had regional involvement, and you had superpowers struggling as well, like three-dimensional chess. But Syria has beaten the record by a long way. They had about, at one stage, something like 1,200 different armed factions on the rebel side. Um, and now you've got, for example, the Russians there. The Russians were never in, in Lebanon, not, uh, not on the ground like that. <coughs> so the, the Syrian conflict is, is very, very complicated. You've got Turks in the north, you've got Americans in the northeast, <coughs> and going down uh, from the east side there. You've got Israel, you know, very influential in the southwest. Uh, you've got Russia on the ground, Iran on the ground. You've got uh, Hezbollah there. Um, and Bashar is, in a way, sold off uh, some of his sovereignty because the Russians, for example, are recruiting directly into the Syrian army and, and paying these people themselves. So, the, you know, how much actual say Bashar has on some stuff is, is open to doubt. So, anyway, maybe he will turn out to have just won. And, but I, I think in a conflict like that, it's very hard to just turn the clock back and say, I've won and things are still the same, because, you know, wars change things, and I'd be very surprised if it just goes back to Bashar ruling and everybody saying, yeah, Reis, and everybody being happy. I don't think it's going to be that simple, and it could do what happened in Lebanon, which is go back under the ashes, mutate, and then burst out in different forms, because of all these different foreign involvements, especially Turkey in the north and uh, the Iranians and so on. Um, which brings us on to, of course, mentioning the Americans, it brings us on to the Trump phenomenon, because it's very hard to predict anything that involves the Americans when you don't know what's going to be tweeted at 3 o'clock the following morning. And his own staff doesn't know either, and maybe he doesn't know until he does it. He tweets something that he said different the day before. Um, so it's very hard to predict Syria for many reasons, but that, that's another option that the Americans are involved, and one day Trump says we're leaving now, and then you suddenly realize that, in fact, now is not now, it's, it's sometime in the future, and there are things that have to be done. Um, <coughs> so many fluid and, and complicated elements there. Um, which brings us on to Trump and, and an issue which I've not really touched on, um, which is the central Palestinian Israeli issue, which, in a way, it's interesting, I've been talking for nearly half an hour and haven't mentioned the Palestinian issue, which is the core, supposedly, the kind of core. Um, sacred issue for Arabs and Muslims. 
um, it's been so overshadowed by all these other huge developments that I think the Palestinians probably feel really that they've been sidelined. But it is still important because um, Trump and the Israelis um, want to basically get together and hit Iran. It's a eBay fix in the, in the mind of Trump. Um, probably planted there by the Israelis, I imagine. <clears throat> um, to my mind, as I say, it's very hard to predict anything about Trump, but I think there are two guiding principles, if you can call them that. One is that anything that's got Obama written on it, you will go for and destroy if you can. But the other thing is, anything Israel wants, Israel usually gets. Um, maybe we should call Israel first, not America first, America second, then the rest of the world. I think. Um, but it does, because of this obsession about Iran, uh, it does raise the Palestinian issue because I think even the Americans realize that you can't get the Arab world together with Israel against Iran unless you settle the Palestinian issue. Um, Al Haig, who was American Secretary of State back in the early 80s, constructed a theory that he called the, the strategic consensus. And he went under the lead trying to get the Arabs together with Israel against the Soviet Union. That was just never going to happen. The Arabs can't get together with Israel, even if some of them want to, and even if some of them do things secretly with the Israelis. Um, so the Palestinian issue had to be addressed. They supposedly got this thing called the deal of the century. Um, <coughs> nobody actually knows what it actually really is in detail. But it seems to involve uh, America, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, especially Mohammed bin Salman, um, getting together, agreeing some kind of Palestinian deal, um, whereby apparently Abu Dis, which is a fairly miserable um, place outside Jerusalem, would be called the Palestinian capital, and the little bits of leftover patches of West Bank would be called the Palestinian state, and everybody would expect you to accept that. Well. I don't think it's going to fly. It might, you never know. But until, and the other question, of course, is what can Saudi Arabia and specifically Mohammed bin Salman uh, deliver at this stage, especially in his career with the, the Khashoggi murder hanging over him? Um, it's yet to be clear exactly how damaging that is for him, but I have the impression that nobody particularly wants to be associated with him at the moment. He looks a bit toxic, and I. There was some talk of him having a kind of Salah-style handshake session with Netanyahu for the cameras, and I think probably Netanyahu might shy away from that. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, so yeah, where does that bring us? More or less, more or less up to date. Um, all I can say is that if you look around the region now, it is just very, very different from when I got to Beirut. As I say, all those regimes casting concrete. And now if you look around, the whole region seems to be in crisis and in flames. If it's not, there's still fighting going on. Syria and Libya is fragmented and, and is a, sort of been described as a basket case. All the other countries are also somehow in crisis if you look at them one by one, or pending crisis. I mean, even Saudi is not looking very stable. Turkey, which used to be, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, Turkey was looking good. It was looking like the good example of, uh, of, of Muslim or Islamic uh, democracy and so on. Now it's turning into an Arab regime. Saudi is turning into an Arab regime. It used to be a kind of family business, but now it's turning into <laughs> another Arab regime, Allah Saddam Hussein. Um, so all I can say is 
after 44 years of looking at it, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, so please don't, please don't ask me. <laughs> and especially with Trump, I mean, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, far less in another 44 years' time. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Thank you. What an amazing, fascinating tour de raison, very, very detailed, very fluent. Um, lots of questions. I'm going to ask a couple of questions, uh, but I have to say two things that I forgot to say before. So, uh, Rosa there will be taking some pictures from the audience for promotional purposes. If you don't want to be um, photographed, then just you know, go away. <laughs> and also, if you want to tweet, from uh, Jim's uh, fascinating talk, you use the hashtag LSEMUR, or one word, LSE capital M, lowercase U I R. Okay? Just so the, the cutting edge of social media. <laughs> um, so I just want to, just, if I may, just to use my uh, <coughs> prerogative as the, the chair, just ask a couple of questions. I mean, there's, there's so much, I'm sure you're all gagging to bombard the gym. Um, <coughs> I can ask about media. But you've been, you know, you've worked for an enormously important news organisation for four decades. You, you know, you are absolutely at the, at the at the top of your game. The BBC still for all day. Can we get through this even without mentioning Brexit? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> even yeah. Leaving that aside, Brexit, BBC, whatever, BBC still has an extraordinary reputation. Um, do you think it's, do you think that 40 years on, 40 decades on from the day you arrived in Beirut in 1975, we are better in countries like this, the West, with all the, you know, all the legacy, the toxicity of relations between the West and the Middle East, are we, are we better than we were at understanding what goes on in that part of the world? What do you think? You mean the media? I don't quite. Yeah, I mean, I think the media. Do we, you know, are we, how are we doing, actually, in terms of uh, the media? Well, yeah, I, I can talk for a long time about how the media has changed over this time, how, uh, and give lots of examples. And for example, in 1980, I was in Damascus and I bumped into a guy from Aleppo and he said, Oh, you should come up to Aleppo and there's all kinds of things going on up there, you know, with that curfew for a week and they're blowing up government offices. And I said, What? You know, because nobody knew anything about that. This was, you know, there were no mobile phones, there was no tweets, there was no nothing in those days. And people, <coughs> regimes could suppress news, you know. So I, I went up there and, and um, saw what was going on. In fact, I got stopped in. in uh, because it had been taken over by the, by the Muslim Brotherhood who were burning tires and they'd thrown out the Mughalbarat and everything. Um, and the world knew absolutely nothing about this. You know? And it was a massacre, of course. Uh, that was two years later. This was two years before. Yeah. This was just when it was starting off, see. And the world knew absolutely nothing about it. So I went back to the story. The Syrians said, he'd never even been in Syria. Um, and it was like a kind of mushroom cloud and the fact that eventually got me thrown out of Beirut because um, we got you know, death threats and uh, they were shooting people. So um, I had to leave, that's why I went to Cyprus and that's where my daughter got born. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, the media have changed enormously. I mean, take jump from there to, to what we have now, which is, you know, the minor, the minorest thing that happens, everybody's tweeting about it and 
all over the place. Now, does that mean that we understand things better? Uh, I don't know. Um, the way we work as journalists has changed hugely. Um, there's now, because everything is supposed to be instant, you know, working for BBC, for example, in the old days, in 91, I, I joined the Kurds in northern Iraq after they'd uh, risen up against Saddam Hussein after the first Gulf War, or you call it, um, when the Kurds rose up and then fled to the mountains. I was there for six weeks, and um, I had no communications whatsoever. I had no security guys, I had nothing, you know, none of the things that sort of hamper our activity now. Now you have to be there with a satellite truck and with safety advisors and flat jackets and helmets and all that. Would you understand the story better? I don't know, you'd be reporting on it a lot more, but I'm not sure you would know more or understand more uh, than we did then. I mean, I, you know, as I say, spent six weeks with these people, so you get to know them really well in a way that you can't if you're standing in front of a camera with a, a satellite truck all the time. So, yeah, I. Again, there are still some serious bits of media. There are American newspapers like the New York Times, Washington Post, which are serious, which have serious standards and which do really good, <coughs> really good reporting. Um, we do a lot of rather superficial stuff, it has to be said. But again, the BBC is, is multifarious. I mean, one of the last big things that I did before I took a break, but I'm still on, <laughs> um, was to do a, a huge piece about the roots of ISIS, uh, 15,000 words, which was bigger than anything they'd ever put on the web before. The web crashed when they put it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they, they, they do do some serious work. And actually, amazingly, I mean, I, I sat there all day writing this thing for six weeks, and they put it on the web. And within a few days, like a million and a half people have read it. You know, so there is a market out there for serious... Technology has advantages as well. Yes, it does, absolutely. And especially the web, because it is infinite. You can put 15,000 words out there, even if it crashes temporarily, they get it up and running again. You know. What were you, what were you over the years, you look back, what, what are you most surprised by? By continuity with all those nasty regimes or the Mokhaba? What, what, what are you. What, What's been disappointing and what's been... Has anything made you more optimistic about the region? <coughs> to be honest, it, it's kind of hard to be optimistic about the region, to be honest. Um, Lebanon I'm always a bit optimistic about because it, it was so fragmented to start with. I mean, all those years in Lebanon during the crisis, we were looking at Syria and thinking of it as a kind of impregnable citadel. But um, when Syria crashed, it crashed worse than Lebanon did. Lebanon was already very fragmented and, and almost in a situation where nothing much worse could happen to it. You know, um, so you can call that optimism if you like. <laughs> it's very guarded. Um, otherwise, I think yeah, Tunisia is a bit hopeful um, because, as I say, at least they're not fighting each other. You know, and they've got processes like Truth and Dignity Commission and things like that going. There is a re-examining of their history, and that, that's encouraging. Um, yeah, I'd like to say more about, but as I say, I'm aware that there's a sort of ideological crisis in the Middle East, you know, and I think that was one of the, the roots or the, <coughs> the vacuums that ISIS filled, because if you're a young Arab or a young Muslim, what is your vehicle for your desire to change the world, to make a difference? I mean, Arab socialism has come and gone, Arab nationalism has come and gone, communism came and went, and the Western model is nothing right home about, so you fall back on extremist religion, you know. <clears throat> I, I just wish there was some way of 
giving young people in the Middle East uh, a vehicle for their aspirations because at the moment there's a lot of hopelessness, a lot of unemployment, and then these, these regimes which are almost invariably corrupt, nepotistic, brutal, and all the rest of it. I mean, the idea of Syria just going back to the way it was is, is just... It's just unthinkable. That's deeply depressing. Half a million dead. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Half the population is pictures of people being basically tortured to death over a long period, starving, tortured to death in jails, you know, things like that. I mean, it just shouldn't, shouldn't be allowed to happen, but who's going to stop it? But it looks, doesn't it, as though it's going to be very. <coughs> okay, not quite just yet, but basically the business as usual. Um, I wonder, I wonder. The Americans are saying they're not going to join in Syrian reconstruction. Um, until there's change of regime or, or, or political settlement of peace. But why should Bashar make concessions when he thinks he's won? You know, when he didn't make them when he was under pressure, why should he do it now? Yeah. So, over to you, please. So, well, goodness me. Gosh, all right. So, um, you have to, again, for the recording, we need to speak, uh, speak loudly and clearly. And uh, please, gentlemen. <coughs> Fantastic overview, thank you. Jim, to what extent do you support Trump's assertion that um, ISIS has been vanquished? Is ISIS here to stay, or are you really <coughs> on the way? Um, I don't agree with it at all. I mean, even if you're talking purely physically in military terms, there are still pockets of ISIS. <coughs> um, if you read my work on the subject, um, basically ISIS roots are in the dysfunctionality of Arab regimes, economic issues, governance, and all these things. Until the Arab world is being properly and fairly governed, and with prosperity, and with ideologies that, that match, that, that, that somehow are relevant to them, I think ISIS will always be there, though even if you suppress it, it will be there in the dark corners waiting to spring out at any moment that it, it, it can see the opportunity, whether it's in Iraq or Syria or Yemen or Libya or wherever, I think it will be lurking as long as those dysfunctions continue. Um, look at Iraq, for example. Uh, they had elections in, uh, in May. Uh, they've got the prime minister and president, but they still don't have a lot of key jobs like the defense ministry and the interior minister filled. There's no real sign that they're taking the Sunnis back on board in a way that matters. So it's quite possible, I'm not saying it's going to happen at all, but it's quite possible that um, you know, the Sunnis are going to still feel disaffected, that the presidents who've gone into the woodwork will come out again, and you could have a repeat, whether it's ISIS, it doesn't really matter, it can change its name or whatever, we're talking about the same strand, the same virus. Um, in fact, Obama said something rather wise, he said, you don't defeat a bad ideology by bombs and bullets, you defeat it with a better ideology. But until that happens, or a better idea, comes along, I think there's always going to be space for them to, to make a comeback here, there, or somewhere under their own name or somebody else's. Yeah. Uh, okay, so in the back, the lady in white from there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on how journalism has changed in the Middle East, more particularly, I guess, in the example of Syria and compassion fatigue in the terms of protracted conflict and how um, sorry, outlets like the BBC are maintaining interest in the public and in um, stakeholders in terms of a conflict that they fear. 
So, sorry, could you repeat the last word? Somebody coughed. <laughs> I like maintaining um, public interest and stakeholder interest in a conflict that's in its eighth year and that is, has no foreseeable end. I guess you could say the same for Yemen. So I guess in general, in the Middle East, our outlets like BBC maintaining um, public interest through reporting when there's so much critique. <laughs> No, it, it is a real problem, especially with Syria, also Yemen, which was horribly ignored um, for such a long time. Um, in fact, there was a quite good cartoon in Private Eye, you maybe saw it, it had all the media pointing their lenses that way and then an arrow saying Yemen pointing the other way. You know? <clears throat> and I think that was a very fair comment. You know, Yemen was a country in the corner of places which didn't matter all that much, it didn't have oil and things, you know, just hush, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the compassion fatigue is is a very real thing, I think, with Syria. I mean, I, I for the first two years, I was doing kind of the bulk of the BBC's, you know, mass production uh, coverage, and there was ins completely insatiable demand. It was it was impossible to keep up. I was sort of tearing up at 6, 30 in the morning, going to bed at midnight, working around the clock, doing 30 or 35 deadlines a day. It was just, you know, incredible. <coughs> But that tapered off because you can't keep doing the same thing. When it becomes a situation rather than something that's actually new, it's much more difficult to keep reporting it um, because you're essentially saying the same thing every day. More people are being killed, more people are being killed. In Iraq, actually, they came and they went, nobody was killed, and that was news, you know. <laughs> um, so it is difficult, and what you have to try and do as a journalist is to find not just quirky, offbeat things, but human stories that illustrate uh, the reality of what's going on. And that, that is the challenge, especially doing Syria, because uh, a lot of the reporting on Syria, including most of mine, was uh, remote stuff, because you couldn't go there. You would have, you, to, some people were doing kind of adventure trips and getting themselves kidnapped and beheaded. Um, but each of those trips that the BBC did was took months of planning and had all these security guys and all the rest of it. Um, so the bulk of the actual reporting had to be done sort of remotely where you're feeding off to quite a large extent social media because that's made a huge difference in recent years. I mean, you get tweets and you get uh, stuff, footage appearing on YouTube and so on, um, which have really revolutionized it. Uh, obviously, you've got to be incredibly cautious because there were some fraudulent attempts. Sometimes people put out horrible pictures that actually turned out to be from Iraq 10 years ago or stuff like that. So you've got to be very, very careful. but. Um, it did provide at least you know, some kind of access uh, to the story. Um, so you're right about compassion fatigue and reporting fatigue. You know, when you're doing the same thing over and over, as I say, the challenge is to find interesting new ways and human ways of putting the story across. But it, it's not easy as that things go on politically, <coughs> not just week after week, but year after year, and that, that is the problem. You know. Yes, Debbie. <coughs> Thank you, Jim. That was a wonderful talk. I've got some very quick questions for you. Um, is the Palestinian issue really the most important issue for Arab regimes or Arab countries in light of their track record of getting peace with Israel and involving the United States? Secondly, Bashar Assad is back when this regime is propped up by the Russians. He doesn't have any legitimacy. Sooner or later, he will be gone. Now, what would come after him when he does go? Thirdly, you talk about ISIS. Yes, they'll always be in the background. Maybe they're gonna, the remnants of ISIS are going to morph into something else because of those dysfunctional issues. Um, ISIS have 
this claim on the caliphate, don't you think if somebody, an entity or a state, needs to come along and reclaim the caliphate as a non-violent concept, as a part of Islam, or would that not placate ISIS and this concept they have? And lastly, the Arab Spring, a failure. You're Thanks. That's great. The Palestinian issue obviously is often sidelined and it's often ignored, but uh, I think it is hard for, you know, the, there's things that go on under the surface. I mean, I'm told there have been meetings between Netanyahu and, and MBS, Mohammed and Salman, for example, secret meetings and stuff. But the reason they're secret is because if they do them in public, then they'd be sort of in trouble. I'm not suggesting there would be riots. There, there might be. There's a lot of, there's a lot of grassroots sentiment about Jerusalem, for example. <clears throat> when MBS was suggesting that Jerusalem didn't necessarily be the capital and wasn't making a fuss about the Americans moving <clears throat> their embassy to Jerusalem, actually King Salman said Jerusalem is a holy cause for the Arabs. I mean, it is officially there. It's enshrined in all their, all their liturgy, as it were. So I think it's very difficult for the Arabs to, to renounce it, uh, either Jerusalem or the Palestinian cause. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because obviously Trump and Co are out to kind of dismantle the Palestinian cause. They've defunded UNRWA, the UN agency, for example. They kicked the PLO guy out of, of Washington in the middle of school term, Haram, um, and uh, of course moving the embassy to Jerusalem and so on. Uh, the Saudis, presumably probably by Mohammed bin Salman, spot allowing Palestinians to do the Hajj to do the pilgrimage because you know tough. Um, but uh, <coughs> interesting, obviously they're going to try and push along that track, but I, I just find it difficult, maybe I've been around too long or something, but some things just go against nature, as it were, and I think trying to liquidate the Palestinian cause officially, even if you're betraying it in the shadows, it is a step too far. Um, people get dumped off for that kind of thing. You know? <coughs> um, yes, Bashar is propped up by the Russians and by the Iranians. Um, you say he'll pass on, he'll move on, somebody will get rid of him, well, who's going to get rid of him? He might die. He, he will die eventually, but he, they have to change the constitution because he was only 34 when he took over, and he would be there for a very long time. And he's in fairly dapper health, I think, you know, as well. So he could be there for a very long time. I remember, you know, not so many years ago, about a year or two after the um, war started, people were saying, oh, he's going to get on a plane and go to Ukraine. <coughs> no, he wasn't. He was going to cling on tooth and nail, and he did. So I wouldn't count on it. There was talks of him having differences with the Russians when he remembered his first trip, his only trip, actually, was to Russia. And the Russians apparently, you know, give them a bit of a, 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 a knuckle-wrapping. <coughs> but, you know, there's been no real signs of differences between them, and Russia is really embedded in, uh, in the Syrian system now. So I think he's going to be there, unfortunately, for a long time to come. But, you know, things are unpredictable. Somebody could easily slip through and kill him. You know, that could happen. It could happen. But uh, it's not predictable. What would happen would then depend on what the circumstances were. You know, presumably, has he got a brother tucked away there? I'm <laughs> sure he has. <laughs> of course, man, well, who's seen him recently? Yeah. yeah, so, go ahead. <coughs> Perhaps you can come back to the other question. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Just, just one question. <laughs> Make it good. Regarding the elements of change and continuity and
being possibly, if you want to call it optimistic. When you arrived in the Middle East in 1975, 44 years ago, the Kurds had no any voice in the Middle East, and they were completely ignored by national, regional, global powers. The Kurds, especially after the Shah and Saddam agreement in 1975. But now they have uh, a legal autonomous status in Iraq, and they have a de facto autonomous governance in Syria, and they also are the leading opposition in Turkey and Iran. <coughs> Uh, can we be optimistic about the possibility of Kurdistan becoming a turning point in the Middle East? Or, because they cannot be grouped easily within the current Sunni groups and Shia groups. They act more secular, more democratic, and more emphasizing on religious, but uh, showing more tolerance with coexistence with other, other <coughs> groups and other religions. Uh, are you asking whether I think that uh, there may be a Kurdistan, a unified Kurdistan? No, no, they no. affect on the Middle East. Yeah. And changing current politics <coughs> between, dividing between Sunni and mm. Shia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <coughs> no, you're right that the Kurds have. Um, <coughs> I'm going to go before my throat. Sorry. Um, the Kurds are certainly on the map, but um, they have. Really, I think Barzani made a big problem in Iraq when he went for that referendum um, on independence because, you know, <laughs> all Kurds want to be independent, but you've got to be realistic. If you're landlocked and surrounded by people who don't want you to be independent, you're not going to be very independent, you know. Um, so the Kurds had to make their peace with, with Baghdad <coughs> and kind of more or less come back into the Iraqi uh, family, as it were. But in fact, the Iraqi Kurds have had quite a good deal since 1991. I mean, they've been running their own affairs. They've had a slice of the um, Iraqi budget, 17%. Um, and at the same time, they've been running their own affairs. They've got the president, they've got a prime minister, they've got a parliament, they've got an effective army, they've got security forces. And really, that's the best of both worlds, because they were also president of Iraq and foreign minister of Iraq, etc., etc. So in Iraq, they were really doing quite well. Uh, and they still are, I and mean, the president is Iraqi, that's his Kurdish story. Um, and uh, they've still got, you know, a lot of things going on in, in Kurdistan itself. Um, they're just one step away from actual independence, so they haven't got uh, their own uh, passport, their own driving license, things like that, their own car clicks and so on. But, you know, they, they've got a lot, a lot, a lot of autonomy, much more than just simple autonomy. So. They're actually doing quite well, and they bounced back from, <coughs> you know, <coughs> sorry, that really quite bad mistake where they lost Kirkuk and all that because of that bungled referendum. <coughs> the Syrian Kurds are in a very powerless position. Yes, they control a lot of territory, um, and yes, they're running their own affairs to a certain extent, but they're very vulnerable. Um, if the Americans were to suddenly pull out, uh, I mean, it's going to depend a lot on. The, the Syrian regime and on Turkey as to what really happens with them and on the Americans. The Americans are now having said we're just going to disappear. They're now saying, oh, we'll only disappear if there are guarantees that the, the Turks aren't going to bash the Kurds. Well, that has got the, the Turks in a furious bait now. Um, the the Tur Turks are very, very angry because they're being dictated to by the Americans. They don't like that. They refuse to receive John Bolton when he went to 
as the president's uh, national security advisor. Um, so relations with, I mean, what's going to come out of that is very hard to predict, but this, the Syrian Kurds are in a very vulnerable position. And I think they will end up doing a deal with the regime. They never really left the regime. The regime pulled out of their areas largely, but kept forces there and key things like the airport at Karmashvi. Um, and uh, they continued paying civil service salaries, doctors, hospitals, and all, all that sort of school teachers and so on. They were being paid from Damascus, you know. So they, they never really relinquished the regime. Um, and I'm, I suspect the formula will be found for them to have some kind of semi-autonomous existence within a Syrian federation, which is what they claim they, they want. They've never said we want independence of Syrian Kurds. They've always they will said we want self-administration within a federal Syria. So that may be what they get if Bashar is in a good mood. Um, <coughs> no time, it, it depends a lot of what happens between the Americans and the Turks even the Iranians and uh, the regime, the Syrian regime. Um, I don't think the, the situation of the Iranian Kurds has changed hugely in recent years. They, they've always had a militant tendency. They've always been pretty suppressed. But at least they've got a province that's called Kurdistan on the Iranian map, which is more than you get in Turkey. Um, the Turkish Kurds are obviously in a much worse situation than they were, than they were about 10 years ago. I think you're looking good. That's what I say. One of the sad things about what's happened in Turkey that 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, Turkey seemed to be prospering. They looked like they were going to be doing a deal with the Kurds. It was going quite well. And then suddenly it all just went badly wrong. Um, so, yes, they are on the map, the Kurds. But there's no, I think there's very little chance that they will actually get together into some sort of unified Kurdistan, despite the ideology of the, the PKK and so on. Um, but they're there, and they're an important element uh, in all those countries. So, thank you. Good. So, well, um, guy here. <coughs> <coughs> Thanks. Um, my question is: Is there some sort of do you believe, like in the West, um, like in invasion fatigue, particularly like a mass invasion? And is that linked to somewhat possibly the uncertainty of Western invasion within the Middle East? For instance, like when you said earlier, when Saddam Hussein was in power, although it wasn't perfect, there was some certainty. And invasion itself sometimes draw those, when, when the country is invaded, there's a, a huge level, level of uncertainty where people just, you know, return to what they know. You know, and, um, and, and I guess the more that that happens, then the more uncertain things come and possibly particularly even after the Arab Spring, it shows that people prefer certainty rather than possibly Western democracy, mm -hmm. in a sense. So that's yeah, my question. Western democracy is Western democracy. I thought the Middle East was bad until I turned my TV on last night and watched Parliament. Wow. Um, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, invasions bring change, and you can't predict the outcome. And the invasion of Iraq was particularly horrendous because it destroyed everything. It destroyed all the structures there. Um, I remember being quite struck about five years in, around about 2000, probably 2005 or six even. Um, the guy running our the BBC office, the, the practical guy, Mr. Fixit, um, was Kurdish, and I asked him. Um, was it better under Saddam Hussein? And he looked at me like I was mad. He said, of course. He's at 100%. He's Kurdish. 
So yeah, I mean, under Saddam Hussein, you didn't have political freedom, but the deal was you keep your head down politically and you will have security. But our, our cook, who was a Christian, said, I could get in my car and drive down to Basra at midnight and nothing would happen. Now I can't get to the end of the street before somebody hijacks me. So, um, you know, it, it just turned everything upside down. There was, in Saddam's day, in the good old days, as some people see it, uh, there was security. Um, as long as you belong to the Ba'ath Party, you probably had a job. Um, so you sacrifice political freedom for, or political, your right to speak out for, you know, basically a, a secure life, which uh, the Iraqis really haven't had since then, you know. And they had electricity as well, and they've got that now. <laughs> could, the, could the invasion of Iraq have been successful, more successful, had the Americans not ignored the advice of the British in particular? To you know, dissolve the Arab uh, the Ba'ath Party and and and, and uh, what was the word? Uh, yeah. They took about the uh, the army was essentially dissolved. Yeah. I mean, what is is there something that could have happened differently that would have made a difference to the outcome? Um, I I think it was. A, a bad concept. I mean, I knew it was going to happen, and I remember I was living in Tehran at the time, and I remember lying in bed mentally composing a letter to Tony Blair saying, don't do this, it's going to be a massive historical blunder, because you can see it was going to go bad. So conceptually, I think the whole thing was wrong to start with, but the way it was done just maximized the damage. I mean, to, to completely demolish all structures, you know, security, army, political, um, was extraordinary. And just to be a little bit anecdotal, I haven't done much anecdotes. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, I went from Tehran to Baghdad in, I think it was May or June of 2003, and there was a press conference with Bremer, who was the man who was the American sort of high commissioner or whatever his name was, his job title was. Um, he uh, was giving a press conference, so I stood up when it came to question time and said, you know, I live in Tehran. Can you um, give me your impression of, of what the Iranian role is here? And he said, Iran is doing everything it can to undermine the peace and stabilization process, or something like that. And I said, oh, can you give us some examples? And he said, they know what they're doing, and they know they've got to stop it. Here's <laughs> <laughs> a guy who's come halfway around the world, deposed the leader of a country, smashed up everything, and he's accusing the next door neighbors of interfering. I mean, that was really quite extraordinary. Um, yeah, just to answer your question, though. <laughs> um, Basically, yeah, I think had they simply got rid of Saddam and his circle, I mean, how you could have done that? You keep the Ba'ath Party when it has been responsible for so much death and mayhem among the Shia and the Kurds? Very hard. Um, I don't see how you could really do that without holding the ring for a long time until real political forces come to the fore, because you had the Iraqi opposition, obviously supported by the Americans, etc., and they were kind of implanted. They didn't really have all that much support and so on. And so you get the whole clientele system um, coming up. Um, so it's a very hard question to answer. And that's why George Bush Senior did not do it in 1991. He stayed in Kuwait. After the liberation of Kuwait. Recapture of Kuwait. Liberation was very strong. Yeah. Okay. Let's try and keep it a bit shorter for questions and answers because we, lots of people want to. Thank you very much for your talk. You've highlighted lots of key issues and themes of the past 40 years, but I was wondering if you could touch on the recent GCC dispute and how that's affecting relations across the Middle East. How it's affecting what, sorry? Relations across the Middle East. Yeah, sure. 
Um, I, th I think it's seen basically as, as one of Mohammed bin Salman's terrible blunders. I mean, like the war in Yemen, like the kidnapping of the Lebanese Prime Minister, forcing him to go on TV, reading out the script, saying he was resigning for very spurious reasons, um, and various other things. Um, not to mention Khashoggi, you know, which I think I don't know anybody who doesn't think that he was actually, you know, instrumental in ordering that. Um, so the thing with Qatar, to my mind, is, is you know, a, a really bad move. Um, it has <coughs> caused a split. Um, basically, you've got Saudi, UAE, Bahrain, Kuwait sort of trying to play a mediating role. Oman also trying to smooth things over. Have I forgotten one? The Qatar itself. Or well, Egypt. Um, well, of course, Egypt as well. So, um, yeah, it has caused a lot of trouble. The Americans have been trying to sort of smooth it over. MBS is extremely stubborn, it seems. Um, and doesn't want to mend fences. I think Qatar's actually, I've got a, of course they're probably all much the same, but I've got a sneaking respect for them. They're a small country and they stood up for Saudi. They, they you know, found ways of sorting out the economy, economic problems, they're growing their own tomatoes and things. Um, so yeah, but it, it, I don't know if it's going to end any, any time soon, but in the meantime, the GCC can't really function as a, as a serious block. And from the American point of view, it, it's, it's kind of, they want to weld these guys into a front against Iran. How can they do it when that front is sort of broken up like that? You know, a lot of work remains to be done. Yeah. Well, okay. Guy over there, please. <laughs> 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 okay, um, regarding the influence of the Revolutionary Guards in Syria, um, Firstly, how important are they for the for Bashar al-Assad? And second, how much of that influence is strategic, um, ideological, and lastly, economical? That's something that gets not talked about that much. Mm -hmm. Right. You're talking specifically about the revolutionary guards or Iran in general? Um, like my guess is that the the <coughs> public is not that much into getting into Syria as the Revolutionary Guards are, and that the Revolutionary Guards are pretty independent in, in their actions when it comes to Syria. Yeah, there's certainly the kind of spearhead, but they brought in a lot of other Shia militias from Iraq and obviously Hezbollah and Lebanon as well. Um, but uh, Qasem Soleimani, the, the head of the Revolutionary Guards Quds Force, is regarded as, you know, the the meister of the, of the occasion. He's the guy who's um, doing the the kind of, you know, setting the the, the trend there, as it were. Um, they're obviously doing a lot, you know. Um, the Israelis do some bombing. They kill quite quite frequently. They seem to kill uh, revolutionary guards, guys, even quite near to the south. Um, what they've been doing is taking uh, Syrian militias um, and turning them into popular army and so on, so they're kind of uh, regularizing um, Syrian forces, paying them as well, um, as well as using their own militias. Now, it, it could well be they'll be drawing down on that as the fighting comes to an end, uh, but there are units that have been taken in as part of the Syrian armed structures, and that, that's going to be um, problematic if the Americans are trying to force them out, as they, they claim they want to get every last Iranian boot out of out of Syria, well, good luck to them. Um, it's not going to be that easy. 
Um, but I, I can't give you numbers or anything like that, um, or even what their ideological role is. I'm not sure that is is such a thing. I mean, they're, they're basically they've been defending the regime. They've been setting up mechanisms. They've obviously they're kind of embedded on a long-term basis. Um, but what the political impact of that is, it's hard to tell, really. Um, I'm sure Lino there looks, knows a lot more about this than I do. Um, but, uh, yeah, and also the financial side of it. I'm obviously Iran is pouring a lot of money in there, but I think there's quite a lot of resentment digging, you know, building up back home about, especially the economy in Iran is in a real mess for them <coughs> spending a lot of money in Syria. is obviously going to become more and more difficult. So I'm sorry, I'm slightly vague on all that, but there we are. Right here. Hi, uh, Adrian Yonis. Uh, the Tory government uh, seems to have had a fairly low profile on the Middle East during, during its reign. Uh, after last night, we seem to be faced with the possible spectre of a Labour government in the UK. Um, have you any thoughts about what impact that could have on Middle East dynamics? Um, to be honest, not really, no. I think these guys are so embroiled in their own issues, they're not going to be spending a lot of time worrying about the Middle East. I mean, as I say, watching telly last night made me think what a, what a brouhaha is going on here. Um, no, I, 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 I don't know if it would make much difference, to be honest. What is Britain doing that's important in the Middle East? Uh, Does it depend a lot on, on, what, on, what foreign, on what foreign secretary we get next, if that were to happen? Um, yes, I mean, it, it could do, yes, yes. I mean, it could, be, it could make a, a difference. But as I say, I think that any British government is going to have its work you know, cut out on, on Europe, and they're not going to be spending a lot of time jumping around the Middle East, I think, you know, sad to say. Yeah. So that's the Brexit bit, okay? I didn't mention it. The total Brexit. I know. So, at the back, Blue Sweater. Good evening. Uh, thanks for the talk. Um, you've been in the Middle East for 40 years. Um, how have you seen uh, the practice of religion change in that time. Do you feel that ideology has shifted in important ways? And uh, if the region is more conservative, why do you think that is? Um, yeah, I think in general, yes, that um, society in general has become more conservative. If you look at in Egypt, for example, uh, somebody put on Facebook a series of pictures of you know students from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and gosh, I mean, in the 60s, 70s, it was short skirts, you know, hairdos and all that. Um, and almost all the, the ladies were in hijabs by the end of that series of pictures, you know. So there is a sort of um, religiosity. I've got friends in Lebanon, for example, who I knew in the 80s, who seemed to be totally secular, but now they're fasting. They're fasting in Ramadan, you know. Um, I don't know if they actually go to the mosque and stuff, but there is a certain, I would say, picking up of religiosity. Um, what does it actually mean? Why is it happening? Hard to tell. I think generally, I mean, you've got 
because part of the pressure probably comes from these sort of extremes. I mean, you've got Hezbollah, Iran, and kind of fairly militant Shia strand, and then you've got uh, the militant Sunni uh, lot who are more extreme in my view and more dangerous. Um, and that pressure, I think, sort of <coughs> being felt further towards the middle more than it was, and people feeling that, um, you know, just for social reasons, they, they should cover up or whatever, you know. Um, in Lebanon, is still, you still get girls coming out of the suburbs wearing, you know, makeup and high heels and all the rest of it. So it's not, it's not monolithic. Um, but in general, I think, yeah, there has been a, a bit of a resurgence, but what it adds up to at the end of the day is, is really hard to say. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, thanks for the topic. Uh, you mentioned uh, the Iran-Contra in the 80s yeah. and a lot of secrecy with uh, Israel allowing the Syrians to move into Lebanon. Would you say that the Middle East is more opaque now? And, is, and it's always been a place of secrecy and, and secret deals and secret interests. Uh, is it more difficult for you to discern what, what the interests of the different regional, global uh, actors are and, and how does that make your reporting and how does it impact your, your reporting? Um, I would say it's always been opaque and secretive, yeah, you're right about that. And, um, but I don't think it's any more so now and I think with the arrival of new media, I mean it's quite hard to keep secrets now, people will blurt things out or tweet them or whatever. Um, so yeah, um, of course it's opaque, secret things go on, there are conspiracies that happen. I remember when I was in Cairo, uh, you remember Khalid Bashal when he was in Hamas? Yeah, the Hamas leader. Um, suddenly he got very sick in, in, in Amman because he'd actually been stabbed by the Israelis by this secret operation, which we now all know about. At the time he said, ah, it's an Israeli conspiracy. Well, it was actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot of secrecy going on, but things usually seem to come out in the end, and especially with Twitters and all that, tweet, that tweets and things, Twitters, in the, in the, in the um, Yeah, no, it's very hard to keep secrets, but um, you still obviously got secret stuff going on, secret meetings, secret contacts and so on. It's surprising how often it comes out on blogs or, or stuff like that, you know, or rumours that turn out to be true, you know. It hasn't changed that much, the technology has changed, yeah. Okay. And strong guy in red t-shirt, Uh, you've mentioned a few times now this hard turn that we've seen Turkey make somewhat recently. Um, the explanation for that, what is your take on, on why this has happened? Is it as simple as the explanation that's given in a lot of Western media outlets, that it's basically just a power grab on Erdogan's part, or is there something more complex at play there that you have recognized? Um, I wish I could answer that. Very factually, I mean, it seems to me what's happened is, is power. Power goes to people's heads. Um, it would have been nice if, I mean, that, that's what's impressive about the, the Tunisian thing, where, you know, the Islamists came out biggest. Second time round, they didn't, and they handed over gracefully. Well, you know, Erdogan is, is claiming to power. He's assuming more and more powers. Um, he, he is becoming like an Arab regime without being an Arab, you know. <laughs> Um, he seems to be dreaming about the Ottoman Empire. Um, uh, 
But how, how can you analyze that? It's, it's really hard. He, he is going quite hard for you know, an Islamic, Islamic rule. He's suppressing dissent. That said, there was a coup attempt against him. It seems quite likely that it was you know, this guy in, in, uh, in America was behind it. So if he's paranoid, maybe he's actually right to be paranoid. But his, um, his practice <coughs> was really excessive. I mean, to see him posing as the champion of press freedom over the Khashoggi affair when he's got more journalists locked up than any other country in the world was really quite striking, you know. Um, he does seem to be in his own bubble of, of wanting to be a ruler, a dictator almost, you know, more and more powers, uh, and becoming, as I say, like an Arab regime where uh, you've got rubber stamp parliaments and, and no serious opposition, serious opposition being crushed or people being arrested, professors, and all the rest of it. So why is something, I don't know, maybe the psychology of one man, I don't know, maybe just... We're all in experimental territory, and maybe it's what happens with political Islam at a certain stage. We'll have to wait 50 years to find out, probably. You know. As in, maybe here, the glasses from there? Thank you for your insight into a lot of different things. Um, I just wanted to draw on your really rich um, experience on the ground as a reporter. Um, how are you able to establish trust with people in just really complicated situations um, and just persuade them that you want to spy? Thank you. How do you know I'm not? I think it just goes, goes with being around for quite a long time. You know, <clears throat> people see your work, they realize that you're not misquoting them or getting them into trouble. Um, it's just a question of being honest, I think, you know, um, being sympathetic and being around. Because if, if you just float in somewhere, do a story, and then go away uh, and leave them holding the baby, <coughs> and you don't take the consequences, um, you know, you can get things badly wrong, they, they suffer for it, you know. But if, if you're around, um, you know, people get to know you, they get to trust you, they may tell you things that you're not supposed to publish even, you know, but for your, your background, you know. So it's a question, as we say, how do you establish trust by being there and by being honest and, um, you know, not letting people down, not getting them into trouble. You know, only once got somebody into trouble and uh, he didn't been in trouble but he fessed up for something. I won't go into details, it'll take five minutes. <laughs> so he wouldn't have told me things again, but everybody else would. You know. uh, yeah, guy uh, there with the grey. Hello, thank you. Um, again, the question on journalism. I think Syrian conflict has been the conflict with the most uh, journalist casualties. Um, why is this the case? Why is almost every side is trying to attack journalists? This is not the first time we're having a civil war or sides committing atrocities. And uh, will this be the new normal? Is this some, some sort of new normal where sides just attack journalists? Um, yeah, good question. Um, I think Syria was just sort of desperately dangerous. Um, and what happened was, because there is much more of a safety culture among the big news organizations, like the BBC, as I say, I, I did things in the 70s, 80s, 90s that I wouldn't have been allowed to do now, you know. Um, so all the news organizations are very aware of, you know, 
a dead reporter can't tell a story for a start. Plus, it's, it's hugely complicated to, to get them out, and you know, there's huge amounts of money involved, and so on. So they don't want their people getting killed, and um, so they surround them by flat jackets, helmets, you know, safety advisors, loads of. I mean, when I went into Syrian Kurdistan a few years ago, it was the first trip into the non-regime Syria they'd done for a long time. There are amount of uh, forms you have to fill in, some risk assessment forms with details about what, what's your driver's car number going to be and where's the nearest hospital and all that kind of stuff. You never had that, that stuff before. Now, with Syria, what that meant, meant was that a lot of freelancers were going in who didn't have to you know, abide by these restrictions. And these were the people who were getting kidnapped and killed. And it was a very, very dangerous situation. Several people actually went in with fixers, local fixers, who they knew and they'd been with before, and who betrayed them, who sold them, you know. And they ended up being either shot, decapitated, or, or whatever. And so it was really, really dangerous, and that's why people got killed. Um, it was also a very dangerous war, because, you know, you had the regime using heavy bombing, barrel bombs, indiscriminate, heavy, I mean, not just heavy guns, but heavy bombs in a way that hadn't been done in, for example, in Lebanon. In Lebanon, it was mainly small arms stuff or artillery, but it was only the Israelis who used actual aerial bombs, you know, one-ton bombs, whereas the Syrians were doing it every day. I mean, caused huge casualties. So quite a few journalists went that way, and Marie Colvin being... I mean, in the Marie Colvin case, there's evidence that they were doing it Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on that, but I think Paul Conran, the her photographer who was a military man believed they were being bracketed and sure. actually targeted because of her use of the satellite phones. Yeah. So it was a very, very dangerous conflict as well. So, and people, freelancers, I think, felt more risks than they should have done because they wanted to get the story, get scooped and so on. And they didn't have those restrictions that, that you know, staffers for big organizations had. Yeah. Okay, so we time for a few more. Yes, Andrew. the question on Qatar and my question is to Khashoggi. We've hardly spoken about the GCC, which is a good 50% of Middle East gross domestic product. Um, so my question is, should the GCC be more newsworthy or, yeah. or is one getting it right? One can see the humanitarian story in Iraq and Syria and so on, which isn't there in the GCC. Um, and there's bang bang in uh, in the war zones, but should the GCC be a bigger story than it is? What has the GCC done? In <laughs> years, you could argue that places like Iraq and Syria and Egypt are the same old nasty regimes that are underperforming economically, whereas in the GCC there's maybe a moderate, moderately more enlightened political structure and certainly transformational economies. You could argue. Yeah, I mean, economically they're important, but, you know, it'd be very hard to argue to BBC news editors or whatever that, you know, we've got to get out there and cover the GCC. I mean, it's not very exciting, really. Um, and wars, uh, wars for me, I, I don't consider myself a war correspondent, but I've covered a lot of conflict because that is what is regarded as news. And wars bring change, and that they kind of fast-forward history. Um, and that's why people focus on wars, because they turn things upside down, they bring, as I say, change. Um, the GCC is there, but frankly, they have their summits and stuff, and, you know, 
it doesn't actually, they may be financially important, economically important, but they haven't actually done very much, have they, that's actually registered, have they? I haven't noticed, <laughs> 44 years. Okay, so, uh, yeah, the lady at the back. <coughs> Did you say climate change? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Syrian drought, of course. Yes. Well, maybe part of can it. we actually impute? Um, yeah. Well, yeah. So certainly, in in some areas, like um, in Syria, there was this terrible drought, which caused urbanisation of, of poor people coming from the countryside, and that was a very in Aleppo, for example, that was a, a very major factor because the people who took over there actually were out of town, it's not, not really the elephants, you know. So to that extent, probably yes, but I, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I can't really see how much change it would have brought or how relevant it would have been in, in other situations. I mean, most of them are, as, as Trump said, sand and death, you know. <laughs> okay, I have two more questions. <coughs> okay, so who's really, yeah, yeah, can. Marie Colvin, who you referred to, was always very eager for her reporting to make a change and to influence policy, not just in the Middle East, but also in Sri Lanka. Do you think it is possible that reporting does bring about changes in policies and awareness? And if so, has your reporting done so? I wish, I wish. <coughs> um, I, Coming back to Maria, yes, I mean, she, she did a huge amount. It's very hard to measure whether, I mean, it has an impact, a human impact, whether it actually has a political impact, it's really hard to measure. I can cite one instance where I think my reporting did actually make a difference in that respect, and that was the Kurdish uprising in 1991, um, when the Kurds fled into the mountains. Me and some other reporters were there, including, I think Martin Wolikov was there, yeah. Um, but they, they basically left, and me and Alex Efti of AP stayed there for six weeks running around with the Kurds. Very difficult because there was no communications and so on. But there was a specific um, time when um, John Major saw these pictures on TV of you know, massive kind of biblical hordes of Kurds pouring into the mountains. Many of them died because they, <coughs> it was freezing cold weather, and they were going up into the high mountains in March when the weather was really horrible. So many died. Um, John Major saw these pictures on TV and he proposed the idea of a safe haven for the Kurds that would be protected by Western air power, but they couldn't do it without the Kurds say so, and I happened to be with the Kurdish leadership and I got their say so and I broadcast it and John Major heard it on the radio and said, right, let's do it. You know? So I think maybe there's a little footnote in the street there where it actually make a bit of a difference. It'd be nice to think so anyway. <laughs> Okay, last last question. Who is really desperate? Lady here. Okay. Um, I noticed you haven't mentioned Jordan at all. Running if you see um, kind of any role for Jordan, whether like 
as kind of an example of maybe a slightly different type of regime, or even um, as a country that might potentially have more influence because of its stability in the future on, on kind of the course of history in the um, good point. I mean, Jordan is important, obviously, um, and it's been less shaken by Arab Spring than uh, other countries. In fact, one of the interesting things is actually the conservative monarchies have actually come better up with the Arab Spring than the so-called republics. You know, uh, most of the Gulf countries, Oman is actually, I think, doing quite well. Um, I wouldn't say Jordan, I don't think you'd count on Jordan, are you not from Jordan, not involved in Jordan or anything? No, no, no. no. Um, I wouldn't necessarily count on it being stable because it, it's got some, each country has its particularities and the, the population of Jordan is actually about 60% or more Palestinian, you know, um, and then you've got tribes in the east and all the rest of it, so it's, it's got its own particular set of, of issues and those economic issues, there's been demos quite recently, you know, um, so I wouldn't say it's exempt from turmoil. Um, it obviously plays a very key role, look at it, and, and strategically it's just extremely important. Um, and the king is playing it very conservatively, very straight hand. He's probably going to have to mend fences with Syria. He hasn't, he hasn't gone out, out on a limb and, and kind of um, been desperately rude about Bashar, so he can probably mend his fences. So it, it will probably continue, but as I say, I wouldn't absolutely count on anything being stable in the, in the current state of affairs. Well, on that note, Jim, thank you so much. That was a wonderful. <laughs>